a significant number of us end up practice owners and we're supposed to be good at everything, right? We're supposed to be good at management and HR and legal stuff and financial stuff. And of course, all the medical stuff in addition. And that's just not true. We're not taught all that information. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Whisker Talks. I'm Adam Greenbaum, CEO and founder of Whisker Cloud. Today, I have Dr. Phil Zeltzman here. What's going on? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good, man. I'm glad you're here. I've, I've worked with you and known you for years, and you're just an interesting guy. I mean, you're a surgeon, you're a business owner, you run the Veterinary Financial Summit, you used to do the traveling CE, you've been doing a lot, you do writing for veterinary business. Did I miss anything? Oh, yeah. Half a dozen other shiny objects. <laughs> shiny objects. I actually use shiny objects at Whisker Cloud a lot. And I know that you put that into the uh, questionnaire we sent you before this. Like anytime we're trying to come up with something new, I call it my shiny object. So it's like, okay, what's the new feature we're trying to come up with? What's something really innovative that we're trying to do? They all live in my secret shiny objects file. So I'm glad you use that term too. Yeah, it's a disease. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's a distraction. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of distractions and then Whisker Cloud came and I've basically dedicated 200 hours a week to this for about five years. Well, it's starting to pay off, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, you're the perfect person to talk to about that. But, you know, we start every episode. I'm a lover of Marvel. So what's your veterinary origin story? The atomic bomb dropped. You turned into the Hulk. Spider bit your hand. Tell me all about it. Yeah, so Hulk is probably the last word or name I should use. My origin story is I kind of fell into it when I was a kid, according to my parents. Classic story. I was five or six, and the only thing I wanted to be is a vet and nothing else. And then once I got there, my only obsession was to become a surgeon. And then I got there, and then the shiny object syndrome started. <laughs> You know, when you make the decision to become a surgeon, I mean, I can't relate. I'm not someone who can do anything well with my hands other than type and code. So how do you make the decision? And I know this sounds weird. It sounds like I have no idea what I'm talking about, but like I want to cut into living things and fix them inside, which when I think about any type of surgeon and, and my wife and I, my wife's cousin, he's a surgeon and he's a back surgeon in New York. Mm. And I'm thinking like the last thing I would ever feel comfortable doing is cutting open someone's back and thinking, yeah, I know what I'm doing in here. So how do you even make that decision? So I'm afraid I don't, I don't have a sexy answer for that. I really don't know. It's almost by exclusion because I should not be allowed to do anything related to dermatology or cardiology or internal medicine. I was just naturally attracted to surgery. I love the idea of spending an hour with a patient in literally changing a life. You know, you, you start with a broken leg in 20 pieces and an hour later, it's back together. It's kind of cool. Or dogs come in in severe pain and after an hour long surgery, I wouldn't say they go back home super comfortable, but eventually they are and eventually they can play and eventually they can have a normal life. I love that. Probably one of the worst three days of my life. I'm not a big traveler for work and I was away for work for one night two years ago. And my wife calls me and says, 
Baxter and I, Baxter is my nine-year-old Boston Terrier. Baxter and I were just attacked. They were at a public mall in Huntington Beach. Woman had her two giant pit bulls off the leash. Oh, wow. Nothing against pit bulls, but they're just massive dogs. And my my 30-pound Boston Terrier, who thinks he's a 300-pound Boston Terrier, went up mm-hmm. to them and and they're off the leash and they run over and they bit through his lip into his gums, ripped his face. And it's the one night I'm away. My wife had marks on her foot. And I felt horrible because I was in the hotel room. I mean, it was late at night when everything was going down and I'm trying to get a flight back instantly. And I had just gotten there and I said, I need to go home. I was thinking, do I drive all night? No, that doesn't make sense. But I I mean, I called the, the emergency hospital and I was bugging them every hour. I said, I know I'm the worst. I'm away. This has never happened to him. And Anyway, what they were able to do for him, it didn't, it didn't, they were worried it was going to impact his sinus. It didn't make it through, which was apparently good news. And man, the pressure I felt just sitting there waiting all night, you know, and it's funny too. I always talk to our employees at Whisker Cloud and some days we have busy days. We're no different than a vet hospital. We're having a nice day. Everything's going to plan. And then boom. There's an emergency at a clinic in Kentucky. And then 10 minutes later, what are the odds? There's an emergency at a clinic in Sydney, Australia. And mm. and we have to divide up teams, jump into it. And it's a lot of pressure, but it's not pressure like you probably feel. So it's just pretty impressive to think about the surgical aspect of things. What percentage of surgeries are emergency versus non-emergency for you typically? I'm a mobile or traveling surgeon. So now, these days, I do a small number of emergency surgeries. They're either elective, meaning planned, like ACL surgery, which I do all the time, or occasionally we do get a true emergency, but that's that's kind of rare. It's probably 10% of my caseload. I used to co-own uh, and work at an emergency clinic. So a few years ago, that was much, much more common. So all kinds of trauma and internal bleeding and all kinds of disasters, Uh, but not so much anymore, which is a more comfortable lifestyle. Yeah. The big reason I wanted to have you on today was to talk about the Veterinary Financial Summit, but it's also something that I think the same way our listeners are going to get educated today and, and hopefully learn some things about managing their money and growing their clinic and investing in their clinic. I kind of want to get some answers from you Obviously, Whisker Cloud works with thousands of veterinarians worldwide, and I've had many personal conversations with them. And I've talked to them about finances, and I've told them stuff about what we do at Whisker Cloud and how I manage Whisker Cloud's money. But I'll start with this. And I don't think this is a negative, the way I'm going to word it. And I have a gut feeling on a range of what your answer could be. But what percentage of practice owners have a really strong handle of their financial situation and and how to best manage it. Wow. You're going to get me in trouble. Well, can I guess? So then you'll get in trouble or I'll get in trouble for you. My guess is 10 to 20%. Yeah. Well, you know what, Adam, we're not taking any chances because whatever we say, listeners are not going to know where we put them. So whatever number we say is right. Right. Yeah. I'm afraid you're right. I think it's a minority. It's when we come out of vet school, we're hopefully decent vets, but there's very little information shared about finances on the personal side for sure. And even on the on the practice side, there's very little uh, time dedicated to that, even though it's super important because 
a significant number of us end up practice owners and we're supposed to be good at everything, right? We're supposed to be good at management and HR and legal stuff and financial stuff. And of course, all the medical stuff in addition. And that's just not true. We, we're not taught all that information. But you know what's weird? I, I mean, I have a dual business degree and I have to say it's like, I wasn't taught how to run a business. I was never taught to manage money properly, but I also took it upon myself before I ever thought about starting my first company to find people like yourself more for software companies like mine and get educated. So I'm not saying there's there's not an excuse for anyone, them or me, but you know, I feel like if you've made the decision to own a business, which is an insane proposition, as you know. I mean, I constantly tell people, I truthfully believe 3% of 3% of humans can run and own a business successfully. The stress, if you're like me, I'm incredibly OCD. I'm a perfectionist. The additional stress that's there just from my own weird stuff, let alone managing people and, and trying to keep 100% of people happy, which you're never going to do, it's hard. But I assume... The financial side is what scares the hell out of everyone and makes owning their own business or practice so scary. Where do they start? Let's say they've never met you. What would they do? Well, the first thing they obviously should do is become members of the Veterinary Financial Summit. That's obvious. Well, that's quite obvious. More seriously, it's a challenge because there there are tons of books out there and there's a lot of opinions. The problem is to decipher what's good and what's not good. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Sometimes we, you know, we're just like pet owners. When we have a problem, we ask a friend or parent or a family member, and sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. If you don't know what you don't know, it's really hard to decipher the truth. Does the average vet hospital owner that you've met or mentored, do they look at their revenue daily? I would say the only ones who do are the top managers, quote unquote managers. So those who are, who are really on top of their game and, and who really track KPIs routinely, not obsessively, not because they're greedy, but just because it's their way to judge the financial health of their practice. And I like that you just said that. When I knew we were going to talk, I thought, okay, well, I need to figure out how I want to come off on this episode because, listen, I charge dramatically less than we should at Whisker Cloud. And we've never raised our prices. So, it, you know, in terms of greedy, I don't feel that. But I have 20-something employees. You know, we offer a lot of benefits for them. We do a lot of stuff. We live in Southern California. There's a lot. And there has to be, we have to pay attention to the revenue. But there's also a million other metrics I have to pay attention to. And that even includes the metrics on our employees. And what is the cost of this employee? Not just their salary, but the benefits, the taxes, the 50 other things we do, like what is the total cost of this person and what is the ROI on that person? And that unfortunately is weird as it, it kind of sounds horrible when I say it out loud and I'm, as I'm saying it, I'm thinking like, how's this going to play when people are listening to it? But in reality, I'm like, no, doesn't everyone have to do that? I mean, if you're sitting there with four or five receptionists and you don't need four or five receptionists at some point, are they crunching those numbers saying, okay, we're paying this receptionist 12 bucks an hour do we need four of them sitting there? Can we do this instead? Do they go through these things? Again, the best of the best do because they know what it costs to run a business, which is a fuzzy number. And you're exactly right in any business. Well, not any business, but at least vet med. I should talk about what I know, which is vet med. 
the number one cost by far is payroll. So you, you have to keep an eye on it. And you have to keep an eye on revenue. Otherwise, you can't pay the bills. That's not good for anybody involved. We have a dashboard. I look at the dashboard every day. There it's you go. How many people signed up today? How many people launched their website today? How many people have signed up this month and launched this month? We have a trend that looks at the last year. Where are we against those trends? What was today's revenue? What was today's revenue over this day last month? What are we on pace for this month? There's 50 numbers on it. And you know, every night at nine o'clock when things are finally kind of quiet, but not really, I take a look at that and say, what type of day did we have? What type of week are we having? What type of month are we having? What type of quarter are we having? And I know that, and, and it's nothing, you know, it's like anything else. We're eight days into Q2. So all of those projections every day, depending on the day, are going to throw our Q2 projections just every day. It's going to be wild. And then halfway through, it'll kind of settle down. But I, I always think to myself, like, does my veterinary, does he, we went in there last week and we were out of Trifexis and the dogs needed heartworm tests. And I said, well, let's, let's pick up our Apoquel. Let's do a year of Trifexis for each dog. Let's get stuff for the cat. Let's do heartworm tests. I mean, it's a thousand bucks. I mean, does he even, did they think to themselves, Hey, this is a thousand bucks. His, his wife showed up. They were here for 15 minutes. They sat in the car. We gave them a bunch of meds and they left. I mean, I don't know how they quantify, I guess, time I'm there versus revenue, but I assume that had to make a blip on their, how many people come in and buy a year's worth of trifexes for two dogs in one day. I mean, it has to make a blip where they look at that and like, Oh, cool. Good day. Well, (laughs) ironically, I doubt that's what your vet thought. Your vet probably thought, Oh wow, this was a cool couple. I didn't have to argue with them about (laughs) appropriate preventive uh, care for their dogs. This is, I, I need more clients like that. Yeah, everyone needs more clients like me. It's the Apoquel, it's the Cytopoint, it's the Purina Pro Plan, it's the blood test twice a year, it's the dentals every year. Yeah, trust me, I, I get it. I'm like, I always joke, like I give back to the veterinary community everything <laughs> I take from them. But yeah, it's it's funny you say that. And let me ask you this, finances and money, do you think that's the biggest stress for most of these hospitals and vet owners? Is it just the financial aspect of it? Absolutely. Yeah. Tons of studies show that it's the number one stressor for veterinary professionals, veterinarians and their teams. It's the number one problem and it leads to all kinds of other problems like depression and like getting sick and tired of the profession and burnout because people feel that they're working an obscene amount of hours for not a whole lot of results. Going back to what you were saying, you know, these products don't come free. Apoquel even though I would never buy it in my entire life unless I had a a pet who needed it. But it's not cheap. It sounds like a lot of money, but once you pay the bills, there's not a whole lot left. Yeah. That's the sad reality. No, I get it. So let me ask you this, and this is kind of like a blanket question because I know every situation's different. Let's say someone came to you, they college senior getting ready to graduate vet school, and they came to you and said, I want to start my own practice five years from now, if we're doing decent, what can I, what can I expect to make or take home? What's a realistic answer for a young person just to set the, set the expectations properly? Honestly, I don't know the answer. So I'd rather not even try to guess. Cool. Well, and I have a feeling it's very much like geographically based. And Exactly. Yeah. There, there's so many variations that it's, I mean, there are statistics, you know, AVMA and other 
entities publish these numbers. I take them with a grain of salt because they're averages. But yeah, you're exactly right. It depends on the size of the practice. It depends on the age of the practice. It depends on the demographics around the practice. It depends on the state. It depends on a million things. So I wouldn't even venture to to give you a number because honestly, I don't know. Yeah. What I would say to try to still answer your question is after five years in practice, they should be able to make a comfortable living. It should not be a struggle after five years. The other big question is, do they have um, school loans? It's school loans, and then it's loans to purchase the business or start the new business and do the build-outs. And, you know, we work with, I think even right now, I would guess, I think we have about 90 customers onboarding at this moment in time. And I would guess 15 to 20 of them are brand new businesses that have new buildings that they're building out. And, you know, we're working with Cody Creelman and FenVet up in Canada. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you look at the pictures and look at what he's building up there. We have Dr. Lily Chen, who's over in, you know, just north of or just south of L.A. And yeah, she's both building of them. World. Yeah, and, and they're both building. And I believe they're using the same architecture firm, but they're building these just out of this world hospitals. And and there's part of me that says, why don't all vets do this? I'm from Vegas, a lot of strip malls. I lived in Denver little bit better in terms of the vet hospitals were kind of freestanding and bigger. And then now I'm in Southern California, back to the strip malls. And you see some of these vet hospitals and you're like, yeah, I want more of this. Do you think there's value in building those? Or is there just a happy medium where it's like, listen, if you can be in a strip mall in a good area, you're going to be fine. Or, hey, you should go above and beyond. I've gone back and forth in my head about how I feel about it because it's like for my dogs, I want the best. I want to walk into that practice and not only have, yeah, 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 you know, oh, we treat your pet like family. They all say that. But I I mean, I want to treat my pet like family. You'll do that by having like a really beautiful clinic that's clean, that smells nice, that really goes above and beyond. Is it a smart financial investment to do that or is it somewhere in the middle of geographics and things like that again? Wow, what a great and complicated question. (laughs) <laughs> I, I told you I haven't recorded a podcast in a few weeks and uh, all of my all of my questions are coming out very long and complicated. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. You're fine. It's just so hard to answer. When I see these articles about the best, most beautiful practice of the year, you know, in the glossy magazines, some of these hospitals are unbelievable. They're absolutely gorgeous. The setup is amazing. But then when I look at the price tag, I think, well, how many years is it going to take to pay that loan? And I think you can be more humble and do very good medicine. I think the beauty of the practice doesn't have to reflect the quality of the medicine. But that may not be the client's perception, right? They may think that a small practice means bad medicine and a large, gorgeous practice means good medicine. Man, I wish that were so simple. It's really not. Because I know very tiny practices with very humble uh, practice owners who are fantastic clinicians and without getting diplomatically incorrect, I know the opposite as well. Well, no. And I'll tell you, though, it's like here we are in 2021. And I mean, Whisker Cloud is a business built on the way things look and the way things seem are the exact perception of who you are and and in marketing, it's such a big factor. And I constantly think about that. We had recently launched a website 
for a hospital like in really a place I'd never heard of in North Carolina. And I've got family in North Carolina and their old website didn't have a single picture of their hospital and it was black and it was gray and it was really bad. And they're working with our team. They had some photos taken. They sent them to us. I'm not kidding. It was one of the nicest hospitals I've ever seen in my life. And I thought to myself, man, I wish, I wish hospitals looked like that out here. Cause that's where I would be taking my dogs. And I thought how funny that I'm looking at these pictures of this, you know, of this clinic in North Carolina thinking, man, I wish I had somewhere like that to take my dogs. And, and it really goes to show whether it's the location or the website. Now they have a website where those pictures are front and center with this amazing website. Now people are going to go to it. And before a big part of their business is boarding and grooming. You go to the site, it's black, it's gray, it's very dark. Oh yeah, we offer boarding. There's not a single picture of it. I'm not trusting a coin flip with my dogs. You say you do boarding, you don't have pictures. You've got a really outdated black website. I'm good. But now they have this big, bright website that has pictures and shows you where your dogs will be sleeping and everything they do for them. And all of a sudden, it's just a perception of that. And it's so interesting to me, whether it's building out the hospital or even thinking about marketing, I just don't understand why more vets are so they just they're so adverse to wanting to sort of spice things up like I said whether it's in the hospital or with their marketing and and that's kind of another thing I wanted to talk about but I want to get your thoughts on just why don't they feel that the expense cuz a lot of people say to us well getting pictures is expensive you own a business, spend the $600, have a professional photo shoot. Don't you want the internet and the world to see your, you know, if you spend all the money on your student loans and on this building, don't you want to showcase it for 600 bucks? Yeah. Again, an interesting point. So obviously I don't know this vet, but most vets are introverted and humble and, and some of them feel like showcasing your hospital is, is bragging and that's not how they feel. They don't want to showcase their practice. But it also goes back to what I was saying earlier. When you're a vet, you're supposed to be a jack of all trades. You're supposed to know everything the day you get out of vet school. And, you know, we're not taught marketing. We don't know anything about marketing. Maybe this vet is a brilliant clinician who just was so busy taking care of clients and patients and his or her team that they just had no time to dedicate to the website. Maybe the website was delegated to a receptionist who doesn't know anything about websites. So... That's a perfect example of where delegating to true professionals is a, is a great idea because that's one thing off your list. You don't have to worry about it. You just give it away and it, it's it's done, taken care of a million times better than we could. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, I mean, me as a business owner, who's no different than you as a business owner, who's no different than that particular vet we were just talking about as a business owner, I'm the opposite of an introvert. <laughs> I'm the the literal exact opposite of an introvert, but I think that there's a lot of times where I say, and I, and I think about when vets say like, I'm not a marketer, I'm not a business person. I think to myself, I'm not an HR person. I mean, we have an HR team, but you know, I say, I'm not an HR person. When someone hands me a stack of paperwork, I glaze over. I'm like, I don't want to do this. Even yesterday I had something emailed to me that was like, you have to fill this out immediately for some tax situation in Minnesota where we have employees. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. They're like, no, you have to sign all this stuff and read it all. So I hate that stuff, but I still understand that I have to make the time and make the effort for those things because it's important. And 
I think that for these vets, you know, they're introverted, they're humble. They still have to take that hat off sometimes, in my opinion, and say, okay, I'm still a business owner and I have to put effort into this website or people aren't going to come and I have to hire good people or people are going to not bring their pets here anymore because they didn't have a good experience. It's funny because all of this is about perception, right? It's the same as a client looking at a hospital online or physically. It's all about perception. If that colleague saw taking pictures or paying a professional for a website as expenses, it's sort of a negative. If they saw the light and they saw it as an investment that's going to generate more money, like an investment should, it's a whole different perception. That is a literal perfect segue because I wanted to, I'm going to lead with a question and then I've got some follow-ups and stuff that is something that we talk about internally and talk with clients daily. So when you're advising people and they're running a successful business, whether they're profitable or they're not, but they're heading towards profitability, what percentage are you telling them to reinvest back into the business? I think the number is usually three to 5%, but that's going to depend dramatically on the personal philosophy of the practice owner. Because again, some people see it as an expense. Some people see it as an investment. Right now, many of my friends and colleagues don't want to spend a dime in marketing because they're overwhelmed with with cases. They don't know what to do with themselves. But in normal times, I think three to 5% is probably a reasonable amount. Well, and I'll, and I'll tell you where I was going with that question. And I, I mean, for a company like WhiskerCloud, we put about 20% back into marketing and growth, but June 1st of 2021 is our five-year anniversary. And we're a company that's more than doubled in size every year for the last three years. And you do that when you put 20% of revenue back into it. And sure. I mean, I own a company. I, I would love to be going to Bora Bora and driving fancy cars. I don't even have a car. I don't like driving. But even if I did have a car, I would have like a Prius probably. So in a different life, when I was doing marketing and advertising for LasVegas.com, there was tens of millions of dollars a year spent on advertising and Google ads. And we did a Super Bowl commercial. And when people come to Whisker Cloud, even on the lowest plans say, oh, $1.99 a month seems like a lot. I'm like, I'm actually flabbergasted when I hear things like that, especially because I know what other companies in the space charge. And I think, oh my God, it's a hundred, it's two hundred, two hundred bucks a month that we, we give you 10 things that if you try to even do the hosting and the security and the domains and stuff by yourself without anything else we do, probably spend about a hundred a month to do it. Right. I mean, you're talking a hundred dollar difference here to have professionals really do it, but they say like, we don't have that in the budget. So we talk to them about what's the difference between an expense versus an investment. And I love that you said that because the thing I always tell people is when Doritos is doing Super Bowl commercials or Mercedes is doing a Super Bowl commercial, they're not just like writing a $25 million check and saying, bye, I hope this works. They're saying, hey, we're about to spend 25 million and we're going to make 100 million back. So kind of goes back to my question, whether it's investing in websites and marketing, whether it's investing in better people for the hospital or better equipment for the hospital or better lights inside the hospital. It's just always interesting to hear the word budget. I mean, I I really love that you called an investment because that's so true. It's, it is an actual investment. And I don't understand why a lot of vets don't see all of these things for the business, take all the digital stuff and whisker cloud stuff away. I mean, the little things in the hospital, 
everything is just an investment. I agree 100%. It's all a matter of how you look at it. And again, I think it's a lack of understanding on how business works. It could be an expense if if the website doesn't generate what it's supposed to, which is patients and clients. It could be. But if it's done well by true professional, reputable professionals, then it truly is an investment because you invest, maybe it is two or 300 bucks a month. That should be paid for by the first client. Oh, God, yeah. And it's, you know, the fr- if you get one good client, it's paid for for the year. Exactly. Yeah. And you do that month in, month out. And that's how you grow a business year to year to year. So someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm starting my practice. Can you give me your top three tips? What are the three quick things you tell them? Like, do this, this, and this. I know it's kind of hard because, again, everyone's different. There's different types of businesses. But are there blanket financial things you tell them that just are just like standard advice across the profession? I don't know if they're standards. My first advice actually would not be professional. It would be about culture and making sure you have the right team because everything else depends on that. I would put that way ahead of anything financial or business, true business-like. The culture sets the tone of the practice, the happiness inside the practice. It sets the tone for how clients are treated, how patients are treated. There's nothing more important than culture and the quality of the team in no particular order for the other ones. I do think that having a good grasp on practice finances is critical because otherwise you're driving in the dark. And that's how people end up not being able to pay the bills or pay themselves. That's one of the saddest things is people work, people, veterinarians, practice owners work extremely hard, especially right now. And some don't have a whole lot to show for it at the end of the month because they pay everybody else, all the suppliers, all their employees, the government, and then they always come last. That's really sad. What do they do with that? You know, how do they set something aside for them just to make it worth it? Well, there's a great book about this, uh, Profit First by Mike, I can't pronounce his last name, Michalowicz, something like that. The way he describes it in the book is a little bit complicated for my taste, but the concept of it is the same as the first chapter of any personal financial book, which is pay yourself first. So the idea is before you pay anybody, you put a chunk of money into a dedicated account that's that's for profit. It's your profit for being a practice owner. And then everybody else gets paid. There's very, 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 very few people who do that, especially in our profession. Interesting. Okay. Sorry to cut you off. What was your third? Ah, I thought you'd forget. Never. I think that, and again, I'm, I'm, I hope, hopefully I'm not going to offend anybody. I think that being sort of plain vanilla cookie cutter in this day and age isn't enough. I think it's really important to have skills that others don't have. And it doesn't mean that you have to be a brilliant brain surgeon. You know, it could be you're fantastic with pet owners or you're fantastic with team members or you're fantastic with bonding with pets. That's that's a gift. It's not not everybody has it. Or, of course, it could be actual skills like being really good at ultrasound or being really good at dental extractions or being really good in surgery. I think that's what adds value. And like anything else in life, if you can add value, that's that's how you make a difference in the world. And you know what the funny thing is? All three things you said, they're no different than 
This is the second company I've owned, and I've been a part of a lot of other companies, large and small. Everything you're saying is basically true. And I think culture is important. I mean, even at Whisker Cloud, I just recently made a decision. We were a startup for a long time. Now we're, I, I still think of us as a startup, even though we're well beyond that. But we had great benefits and we just added a crazy amount more. We cover a lot more for people. You know, we do the 401k. We're adding all of these new things that I want to do. We're talking about offering pet insurance. We're talking about offering like snack delivery. These are things that are important because happy employees work harder when everyone's working harder and taken care of. They're going to be better than customers. When customers are happy, we grow. And I see I'm in a lot of these Facebook groups and LinkedIn groups and I see the negativity and I don't make enough money and I'm not happy and it sucks. And, you know, you see enough of these posts and there's a few where I'm thinking like, I can't believe these people are openly saying how much they hate where they work. And if you click on their profile, it says practice manager at, and it lists it. I'm thinking, why are you posting this? I can't believe it. How many people have lost their job because someone screenshotted it and sent them. But I also have to assume if they're spending, you know, if it's the middle of a Thursday and they're posting that on Facebook, when it's the middle of the day on Thursday, when they should be working, then you probably have bigger problems stemming from their unhappiness. So I like that you talked about culture because, yeah, I mean, if you have unhappy people and unhappy customers, it's it's a money pit for sure. I see the same things you do, maybe in different groups. And it, it's so sad for me to see that, you know, the, the number of unhappy people in these Facebook groups is mind boggling. And, and granted, COVID made it worse because everybody's completely burned out. I get it. But because I, I'm a specialist, the busier my referring vets are, the busier I am. So I'm busy just like everybody else. But I still love what I do. I still think it's the greatest profession on earth. It really saddens me to see how much pain there is in the profession, uh, how much depression, how much burnout, how much compassion fatigue, how much suicide there is. It's terrible. We see that too. And it's funny. I have friends and family members and they say, you know, how's life at Whisker Cloud? You know, what's new in veterinary medicine? And typically the first thing I say is like, it's it's dark right now. And we have a reputation management team. I talk about a lot. I mean, the reviews that are coming in for these hospitals and they name people. I mean, they're just getting more vicious by the day. Mm -hmm. The thing we remind ourselves of at Whisker Cloud, I wish and I hope the people listening start doing this is we're crazy because the vet hospitals are crazy and the vet hospitals are crazy because their clients are crazy and their clients are crazy because their businesses are crazy. So I get it. It's tough. Curbside sucks. We've released some stuff to help with it. But at the end of the day, we have certain hospitals that have like parking spot numbers and tell people, Hey, when you get here for your appointment, park in number three, then they park in number four. And then the person <laughs> who's going to park in number four is confused. And they're probably sitting there like, Hey idiots, can you just park so we can take care of your pet? Why is this so hard? And I got to imagine that's probably those types of things are probably more frustrating than anything else. But yeah, man, it's, it's just like this weird cycle. I guess I'll ask you this. If you're a smart practice owner, what are you doing to invest in your team and what conversations are you having with them to say, okay, like it's just us in here. No clients are in here yesterday sucked. Mr. Johnson is always rude. He was way worse. We hate him. Fine. He's not, he's gone. We'll see him in six months. How are you guys? What can I do to help? Like, do they do that? Is there any thing they should be spending money on for training or support how do they do it to, to keep their teams level during this craziness? I think if practice owners or managers did something like that at the end of the day, that would be healthy 
to allow people to vent at the clinic as opposed to on social media or in their families when they get home. That's a healthy practice. That's a great tip right there. We use Slack internally and we have a role at Whisker Cloud. Someone's really rude. We talk about it. There's a lot of screenshots. It happens. Guess what? We work with thousands of vets around the world. I'll tell you this, 98, 97, 98% of them are literally the nicest humans on earth. We love them. And we have about 2% of our customers that cause 90% of our headaches. It's not like the 80-20 rule. It's just those couple. And, you know, we hear from them typically daily. There's never pleases and thank yous. There's always the, I need this right now. It's always like, oh yeah, you know, can you remove the kennel attendant from our page? We let him go. But it's always like this, I need him off the site right now. If I don't hear back in 30 minutes, I'd like a phone call. (laughs) And you're just like take a breath. We'll take Johnny off the site. It's fine. But I mean, we get those a lot, but at Whisker Cloud, I tell people you can vent. I mean, we're not calling people names, but you know, if someone sucks and typically people tell me, I mean, I'll tell you this man last week, two weeks ago, we had someone onboarding with us. She was calling people names. She was so rude. I called her and I said, Hey, we're not going to move forward with you. We're done. She said, what do you mean? I said, listen, I'm not, you don't get to do this. If you want to go to target and yell at customer support, you want, you can call your cable company tonight and scream at them, but I'm good. You're on our launch plan. Well, it doesn't matter what plan they're on again, but you know, you're on our lowest plan here. You're being crazy. The moment you start calling people names, you're gone. And I'll tell you this. And then I'll ask my question. When I did that, the two women at my company who this woman was rude to both, privately messaged me and were like, thank you so much. It means a lot that you had our back and did that. I mean, it showed that you don't care about money over anything else. The funny thing was it had nothing to do about money or anything. I thought, wow, she's horrible and rude. If she's already pissed off multiple people, I'm pissed off hearing about this. I'm not gonna, I already have my handful of, we'll call them the fun ones. We're good. We don't need more. She could have been spending 10,000 a month. It didn't matter we were done. It's not worth it. Yeah. And, and it's the same at clinics. I think it takes guts to do what you did. And I think that firing clients is a thing and should be done. And if practice owners and managers do have the guts to fire clients, it makes them look like the heroes uh, in front of their teams as opposed to greedy because they see them as dollar signs and anything, anything to make a buck, right? Yeah. But you're right. It's it's not worth it. It's not worth it. So hypothetical. Let's say you had a you had a hospital who was doing fine, not doing amazing, but they're doing fine. And you have someone like me who spends a few hundred a month on the allergy stuff and and does the dental cleanings for three pets every year and and does the blood work because I'm a crazy and want to know everything's going on. Buys the Purina program food and the Trifexis and all that, and I'm rough to deal with. What percentage of owners do you think are just going to say, you know what, they're not worth it versus the, you know, this guy's worth 10,000 a year. It'd be insane for us to lose him. You think it's a tough call? It is a tough call, but especially right now, because everybody's so overwhelmed, I think it's much easier to fire clients because we can't even accommodate the demand. So even one very good client lost and liberated to and encouraged to go to the neighbor it is, is <laughs> yeah. so, so much so much worth it because it gives space for another client who might be even better. It's probably kind of nice to send that person to the neighbor and say, here you go. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've been leaving all those fake Google reviews for us for years anyway. Here, we'll send you a present. You can have that guy. He's nuts. Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. I think about the law. I mean, it always comes back to 
especially when we're running ads for people and they say, I don't really have the budget for that. We're like, no, you know, we're going to show you, you're going to spend this and you're going to get this many clients back. And we track all that. And there's still this, like, it always comes back to, I do not have the budget for that. And I've always found that so odd to hear those things. It's like whisker cloud. We spend five figures a month on a variety of advertising. I mean, it's, it's expensive. It's a lot, but we're also, you know, when we do this, we're in there so tight. I mean, we're tracking every click. And I mean, that's, what's, you know, I have a lot of conventions in the past. I've said, do you want a booth? And I always say, well, you want me to do a booth for 10 to 15,000? I mean, I spend 10 to 15,000 a month on on our ads. I know the exact number of clicks. I know how many, what they did on our website. I can track all those things digitally. So, but I mean, again, it's not a budget. It's, I can't even imagine running my business without doing advertising or doing the digital stuff. But I also think it goes back to what you said. I, we also have amazing people on our team and we, we just don't lose many employees and you invest in that. If I want better employees, guess what? They cost more money, but in the long run, they have a lot less headaches. So where I'm going with this is I, I see a lot of posts about how people are underpaid. There's no benefits. They're overworked. How do these practice owners figure that out in their heads that, okay, I gotta, I gotta spend the extra buck an hour on that person, or I gotta, we're covering 50% of their healthcare. I'm going to do 75%. What are the little things they can do to keep their people happy so they can grow? That's one of the toughest questions. I think one of the hardest things to figure out is that different employees respond differently to different things. So for example, If you give a raise to every single employee, some will be so thankful they will send a personal email or will write a handwritten card. And some won't even say thank you because that's not their quote unquote love language. Others hate public recognitions, whereas others thrive on it. And sometimes people don't need a raise. All they want is to be publicly recognized for their efforts. Yet others, pre-COVID, they like a pat on the on the, in the back or on the shoulder or a hug, whereas other people hate to be touched. Again, these are different love languages. There's a great book about this. Practice owners and managers who are capable of reading through this and deciphering through the different love languages are the absolute rock stars of vet medicine, as far as I'm concerned, because they know how to reward their team. And I can tell you from personal experience, that's one of the hardest things to do. We deal with that too. We just did an anonymous like survey at Whisker Cloud and we're like, hey, we're trying to come up with some cool new like monthly perks where every month we do something for our employees. And I said, what would mean something to you? And the answers were literally all over the place. People wanted Isn't that interesting? deliveries. No, it's, it's so interesting because it's like some people wanted snack deliveries. Other people wanted us to pay for their streaming services, hmm. gym memberships, or like, you know, like Peloton app memberships. Some people wanted like an extra, and we have so much PTO and they're like, I want an extra half day per month. I'm like, well, most people, you know, it's COVID and we're in Southern California. So most people aren't even leaving anyway. So I'm like, okay, here's, here's four PTO hours added to your total. I don't know what that does for you unless we say, hey, you have to take a half day, which I, I don't know if I can do that either. But it's interesting how like the answers were literally all over the place. I thought there would be like three or four that were the same that were pretty prevalent. But no, it was it was there were so many wild things. I was like, I never even would have thought of that. Yeah, there you go. That, that goes to show you how difficult it is to answer that question. Yeah, uh, because, you know, buying lunch for everybody once a month. Well, first of all, it's a little bit tougher right now because communal food is a no, no. Yeah. You know, way back when in the dark ages, when we used to buy lunch, 
uh, again, some people are super thankful and some didn't care. It's tough. It, it's every practice is different. Every employee is different. There's no universal rule. It's it's all different. If people are listening to you and want to learn more and want to learn from you, can you just talk about the Veterinary Financial Summit, what it is, how do they get involved, who should they reach out to, all of that stuff? I mean, I just think what you're doing is so cool. And I think every person on earth needs something like this. I could not agree with you more. <laughs> uh, and the cool thing is that, you know, we're virtual this year in September, which means that anybody can join from anywhere in the world. In fact, uh, last year, we had people from all over the world. We, Of course, the bulk was in the U.S. and, and Canada, but we had some from uh, the U.K., Cyprus, South Africa, New Zealand. It, it was really cool to have people from different countries. So anyway, you will be surprised, Adam, that the best way to learn about us is a website. Um, so uh, the, the website is... Is registration open? Registration's open now. As we're recording, it's about to open. So by the time that this airs, it probably will be open. So the website is vetfinancialsummit.com. Very simply, the name of the conference, vetfinancialsummit.com. Uh, the next summit is on September 18 and 19 of this year, 2021. We're not just a conference. We don't like the idea of meeting once a year and then everybody's left on their own with their own struggles. We're also a private community online so that people can exchange and interact and learn from each other. It's really cool because, you know, it's always the same. Some people are post regularly and interact frequently. Some are a little bit on the shy side and, and don't participate as much. And then when we see them uh, during the, the conference, it's, it's really cool because even though we don't see each other for a year, we know them by name. So it's a whole community and a conference. That's so cool. No, and and I mean, I'll be honest. I've been in vet med for six years now. I've no, I haven't seen anyone else doing this. Well, there isn't anything like this. That's why we were hoping to fill a, a niche that nobody else has. Obviously, lots of people do little things here and there, but there's nothing comprehensive that addresses both personal finances and uh, practice finance. So that that's why we did it because we. We know that people need that information to be happy, not greedy, happy, balanced, and get what they're worth. Oh, I agree. Listen, you guys, you know, everyone listening out there, you work hard and you deserve to take care of yourself. You deserve the little things in life, it, whether it's going to pick up a, your favorite food, maybe an extra time this month or getting the special, the fancy coffee or tea maker at your house or whatever, you know, or all the little things my employees ask for, whether it's a streaming service or food delivery or things like that. So yeah, I, I you know, hearing you talk about how people are humble and, and don't want to think about, don't want to come off as greedy. I just don't think it's greedy. If your company's doing better, you're going to get to take care of yourself and the people that work for you, which is going to trickle down to your clients and patients. And that's the name of the game. That's just, that's why we're doing this. It's, it's about growing and, and continually getting better. I, I agree 100%. And let's please not forget a trip to Bora Bora every year. Yes. I want to go to Bora Bora. I just posted about going to Bora Bora. I'm like, I haven't traveled for about two years. Once this is all done, man, I, I'm, I'll meet you in Bora Bora or something. Let's do it. Keep me updated on that. For everyone listening... And our show notes, we'll be posting links to the Vet Financial Summit. Phil, you're the man. I've known you for a long time. This was one of our best episodes ever. I just think that everyone's going to have so much to take away and learn from this. And 
I really appreciate you being here, man. That was awesome. Well, thank you. I bet you say that to all your interviewees. Yeah, but sort of the same way that you were the only person on earth doing the Vet Financial Summit. You're the only person that's come on here. We've talked about a lot of things. You're the only person that's come on here that's talked about the financial side of things, which I think is so important. And I don't, I can't think of anyone else who specializes in it. So I don't know. I will never be able to say that again. <laughs> Unless Warren Buffett gets into the vet business and I have him on, then I might say it to him. Yeah, well, be careful what you wish for. You never know. It's got plenty of cash laying around doing nothing. So yeah, who knows? Well, to everyone listening, go subscribe to Whisker Talks, Spotify, Apple, Google, all of that. Rate, review, all of that fun stuff. And we'll uh, see you all next week. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Adam. Take care. You too.